I mean, I would say our limiting factors, it's got to be customers. Right? I mean, the, the really the only our, our main competition, other than the, the two or three companies that we just mentioned, are the customers and them doing it themselves. Right. So that was kind of our, our, our biggest task when we started the company was to, to earn the trust of the, of the customers. Right. And that's a big, I mean, that's a big thing to earn. I mean, that you're, t- you're taking away something that if they, it's not like gas, right. You can flare gas if you can't, if you don't have takeaway. I mean, the, the water, you've got to have somewhere to put it. And to Steve's point, if, um, with the multiple completions and, and now with slick water, slick water fracks, I mean, it's, it's at a level now to where trucking is not an option, period. So if you're not there day one with your pipes in the ground, then, then you've got issues. Oil and gas today is more than exploration and production. It is more than the feet drilled or the hours of continuous pumping. The oil field is a group of people, companies, technologies, and institutions working towards providing the world with safe, affordable energy that is sustainable for the billions of people that depend on the success of the industry. The Oil Field 360 podcast is a 360 degree deep dive into the leaders of the industry who will provide listeners with a firsthand account of what it takes to build, maintain, and lead the energy business into the future. The Oil Field 360 podcast is brought to you by the following sponsors. Simmons Energy, a division of Piper Sandler, one of the largest and most experienced energy investment banking firms in the industry, offering M&A advisory, capital markets execution, and investment research. For more information, please visit SimmonsPSC.com. Lockton Global Energy and Marine, uncommonly different. Lockton is the world's largest privately owned insurance broker and risk finance advisor. Lockton's global energy expertise is centered in Houston and represents the largest concentration of energy specialists, clients, and experiential knowledge in the upstream, midstream, and downstream segments of the oil and gas industry. Visit Lockton.com for more information. Tomahawk Safety a leading manufacturer of safety gloves ergonomically designed for superior fit, offering best-in-class protection and helping you combat the industry's toughest jobs. Tomahawk is also supporting our frontline healthcare workers by offering isolation gowns, gloves, masks, and other critical medical PPE. For more information, please visit TomahawkSafety.com. Range Valuation Services Range is the only oil and gas-focused valuation and appraisal firm in the financial services industry. Range specializes in appraising and valuing oil field equipment, machinery, inventory, and property, and customarily works directly with clients, lenders, investment bankers, insurers, and private equity and debt sponsors. For more information, please visit rangevaluationservices.com. Welcome to the Oilfield 360 podcast. My name is Josh Lowry. We are coming to you live from the Oilfield 360 podcast studio, which is proudly sponsored by Fletch Azul Tequila. I am joined, as usual, by David DeRote. How are you? How are you, David? Doing well, buddy. How are you this morning? I'm good. I'm stammering a little bit because I'm on camera for the first time where they told me to actually stare into the camera. It's it's not as easy as you think it is. No. Why are you staring into the camera? Well, because we're on. We're going to be YouTube now. Oh, okay. We're YouTube famous. It's us and Justin Bieber. This is, I mean, we're, we're, on, the, we're on our way. What'll be interesting is if our buddy Chuck Yates uh, does that face replace deal of us on uh, YouTube. You know, 
he, have you played with that app at all? No, I'm scared to. It's hilarious. I have no time and I don't need anything else to suck away what I've I, I totally agree with that. Are you been, I know you're busy. How busy are you right now? Pretty busy. Yeah. Yeah. Anything going good? Uh, there's a lot of good stuff happening. There's a lot of, a lot of interesting things happening. We're starting to see the great consolidation to occur and still have a slug of bankruptcies yeah. that we're dealing with, but, uh. Yeah, we're we're busy too. I mean, what are we in now? This is uh, mid October, and it's been a beating. Can't it, believe it's mid October. No, I can't. It, it's seven. We're we're on month eight of the apocalypse. Eight months? Did I mean we're 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 going to talk to our guests here? But eight months of this nonsense. I, I shouldn't say nonsense. I know there's a lot of stuff going on, but man, it is. I'm ready for this election to be over. Yeah, I'm hoping that cures some of the COVIDness. I'm just tired of 2020 acting like, here, hold my beer. Let me show you what, what else I can do. Man, those were some funny memes early on, but it's been, it's been brutal. So, you know, we've got some guests today. I got to, I, I got to pay attention to the camera. I, I can't keep just resting. Well, we got to pay attention to our guests. You I know. know we did, we did this guests, too, I got cameras. Uh, I got microphones. Peter Laura, back there. You know, we did the limo wall thing, you know, so we, we had to lower it. So... We have a couple of guests in our in the studio today, and uh, yeah, you guys don't have to worry about the camera. This is the only pressure's on me to do the introduction. Now if the pressure's off. You guys just be cool. You guys ready for this though? Absolutely. Ready. Okay, so we've got two guests, two co CEOs of Waterbridge, which is a midstream water company. We're going to get all, all into this. Uh, Steve Jones is the CFO and co CEO, and Jason Long is the COO and co CEO. Welcome, gentlemen. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks for having us. Yes. So I do say your names and identify your voices. That way everybody knows who we're talking about here. Jason Long. Okay. And this is Steve Jones. Okay. There you go, audience. You got an hour to remember that. So we'll, we'll get into this. Have you guys ever done a uh, podcast before? This is my first time. My first time. Listen to a few of them, but yeah. first time. You listen to some of ours or other ones? Uh, some other ones. Which, uh, what kind of podcast are you into? Joe Rogan. Love Rogan. a little bit of yeah, that. Rogan's yeah. good. Yeah. That's probably the only one I've listened to. Yeah. So you are you into those three hour No, episodes? I usually get about uh, 30 minutes into it and, you know, just, just uh, when I'm driving. Yeah. Just beat up some traffic. Joe's amazing. He's made a fortune doing this. Yeah. Just moved to Texas. That's right, to that. Austin, yeah. Yeah, to Austin, just like everybody else. <laughs> I wouldn't want to move over there right now. No, no. But he's got he's got good perspective. I know when uh, he had Wesley Hunt on, who was on our show previously, they got some discussion around Texas and culture and leave California and California and come to Texas and we'll welcome you with open arms. So I thought that was pretty good. That's a good one. I, I, I listened to that this morning on my jog. So uh, the, if you the felt hunt. the earth shaking, that was me running this morning about 530. <laughs> 2020. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's there's a one, Malcolm Gladwell, that's another one. Yeah, it's really, if you've one. read his books, Absolutely. The, the Revisionist History podcast, mm -hmm. that's a really good one. You guys would, the audience would probably enjoy as well. So, well, we are the best podcast if you've never been on one. So I've heard. welcome to that. Yeah. You can't go wrong here. We've got a great guy that can edit. So we're all going to look fantastic. We got a lot we to talk that. about. We have, uh, we definitely need that. David and I are notorious poor planners. Let me rephrase that. I'm a poor planner. David is guilty by association. And Victoria with Simmons, she knows this. So she did a ton of prep work for well, us. We're so not going to ask the questions she wanted us to ask. I though, just, I just appreciate the effort. Yeah, that's good. Effort. I mean, some phenomenal questions, some background. 
I mean, between Victoria and Laura Schilling and some of our other friends that come in here to check on us, make sure we're still breathing and not, you know, starting a fire in the middle of the office or something like that, you know, they take, they they take care us. of us. Yeah. They do. You know, I did. I played in a golf. You, we were talking about John Daniel off the air and I played in a, his tournament last week and I couldn't believe how many people came up and brought up the podcast. I, I was shocked by it. Almost every person. And there were people that I've never met before saying, oh, you know, I've, I've listened to every episode. And I was like, well, I hope you know that this and that. Like, oh, no, I, I know. I get the jokes. And I'm like, oh, okay. Well, this is this is great. Doing good. That's fantastic. Yeah. So, so, so let me ask you guys a question. Uh, and this is kind of a question I think most people would want to know. You know, Josh and I are kind of co-CEOs, if you will, of our little media company. And, you know, the one interesting thing about our relationship is that uh, we wear multiple hats, as, as you guys obviously do. You know, Josh always likes to end the podcast with, you know, if you got any good news, send it to my email address, you know, and all this kind of stuff. And any any crap, just send it to Road at his email address. So, which one of you guys gets the good stuff versus the bad stuff? Good question. I think there's there's lots of of both to go around. Yeah, yeah I was about to say we probably get our fair share of uh, of both of it. Yeah, I think it's you know it's it's interesting. You know, Jason and I come from pretty different backgrounds in our careers, yeah. and have very complementary skill sets. So. I think that's why it works for us. You know, uh, I tend to, I've been a CFO investment banker all my career, had to deal a lot with the back office, you know, kind of boring stuff. And so a lot of that is mine. Jason's been an entrepreneur all of his career. And so he can be more out there kind of driving the growth of the company and uh but to good Steve fit. says that but he does a really good job of of the latter as well too so always have to hand it off though everybody knows that if you want to get the, the deal done you talk to jason <laughs> <laughs> you want to get in a get fight about up. it you yeah. call me <laughs> so so tell us a little bit more about your background if you don't mind steve for the audience and how you got to water bridge and then jason maybe you can transition as well and give us a little background and talk about, you know, Waterbridge, what you guys are doing today and what the future looks like, et cetera. Yeah. It's a, you know, my background, you know, it's kind of been a, a little bit of a random walk through life, you know, and I started out actually in technology and then accidentally ended up in the energy business working at El Paso corporation. Um, and from there, uh, got into investment banking just because I was in a role where I was working with a lot of investment bankers and, um, you know, saw that they learned so much through what they were doing and, and, and had made a lot of friends there. So I moved over to, to Lehman Brothers back then. I was in the energy group here in Houston and just at, at a time when Lehman Brothers energy practice was, it, it was, I think, one of the top practices at the time and was really growing. I mean, had incredible leadership uh, from Greg Pipkin and, and Lee Jacoby. And so I got so many at bats there and learning about deals and different sectors of energy. I ended up focusing more on midstream uh, over time and midstream M&A in particular. And as I moved along, uh, I wanted to be a little bit more entrepreneurial. I looked at lots of different opportunities to jump over and try to start a company or do something else. Never found the right fit. And then at one point, Maynard Holt from TPH, who I'd been 
you know, done, done deals with before and became friends with called me and said, Hey pal, you want to come over? And, um, that was when they were first starting TPH and it was a great time to jump. And I jumped right before Lehman went through the chaos of 2008. So it's uh, good to be lucky sometimes. And then from there kind of advised myself into a couple of jobs, uh, advised myself first into a job at starting TP uh, or Pentex midstream, uh, natural gas partners was our client. I was helping them raise some money for a small midstream project and came up with an idea, um, that we should really capitalize one team and one company for midstream build out and then service all of their portfolio. Cause they were primarily an upstream, uh, sponsor. And they said, well, it's a great idea. Let's go do it. And, you know, put me in as a CFO, but, you know, helped bring in the team. I brought in, uh, Tom Karam, who was a former client of mine. He'd been a CEO for a long time, was the perfect guy that we needed there and brought that team together. Um, which was a phenomenal experience to be able to jump over and do something entrepreneurial like that and build up a company. We took it from a piece of paper to an IPO in less than 18 months and then sold it to energy transfer uh, within a year after that. Uh, so it's wow, kind of that's a quick. Yeah, it was a whirlwind, but uh, worked out great. It's a great learning ground. A lot of my team from Pentex came with me and uh, we tried various things. And then I got called by Five Point Energy, who's our sponsor for Waterbridge. They kept telling me they had an opportunity, you know, had, a, had a team that was great and entrepreneurial in the water business. And I'd been looking at water uh, as an opportunity. I just didn't know anything about it. I knew it was a good opportunity. I just didn't have a team that was technical in water. And, you know, here there's this opportunity to take my back office team on the legal and, and uh, financial side. We could come over and and join up with Jason and his operations and entrepreneurial team. And it was just a perfect fit. That's a quick turn there, really. I mean, you're talking, what, how long did you stay after the IPO? Well, after the IPO, um, I can't even recall how long it was. It was less than a year, it was maybe nine months yeah. um, as a public company. And Energy Transfer uh, bought us. It remained a public company for a little while, and then they eventually collapsed it. Um, but they kicked us out day one, which uh, it's not a bad outcome. Um, so we got to move on and do our, our, our next things. And, uh, it was a, a great, great experience. Okay, great. So then you're the, you're kind of the entrepreneur that they came to join. Yep. Okay. How does that, what does that look like? Tell me how we got to that point. So, um, I grew up in, in West Texas, grew up in Abilene, as we just talked about, went to TCU. I was in and around oil and gas kind of growing up is, is that's really the only industry. Let's in just and, stop for just a second and give Fort Worth a little credit. Where but, there you go. It's the best. It is the best. Fort Worth Absolutely. is an amazing city. Fort Worth is a great place. I love it. Do you just, how do you go back there often? Not as much as I'd like to. Oh, Not funky as much town. As I'd like to, but it's a, it's a great place. It's, it's grown a ton. Yeah. Right? Big time. I'm telling you. Especially TCU, since I was there yeah. like 20 years ago. See, we, we'll, we'll edit that part out. We're all, <laughs> I, 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 my wife and I almost moved back to Fort Worth a couple years ago and okay. I started looking at houses and I think it's called Blueberry Hill and that Tanglewood yeah, area. Yeah. And I said, in Tanglewood's where the families live, but Blueberry is kind of where the college kids live. And I tried to buy a house there. My wife's like, Josh, you've graduated. 
you you can't go back and I'm like, oh God, it's devastating. I, I try to get myself back in there. So that's a pretty good spot. It's a great spot. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, I I've blown your but no, as soon no, as you no, say Fort Worth, uh, I wanted to jump on it real quick. No, it's good. It's uh it's good to see a fellow horn frog. So Yeah, there good. you go. All right. So yeah. now let's see if you can regain the, yeah, I'm gonna I'm so, gonna just throw grenades in here the whole time. You gotta, so being around only gas kind of growing up, I was I was bound and determined to not do it because I saw, you know, the ups and downs and um so I when I graduated, the Barnett Shell was just kicking off right so anybody and everybody was a landman at that time and i was i was i'm just going to do real estate and not do oil and gas so went and worked for a developer in dallas that was my first job right out of college and come to find out he ended up with some property in the barnett shell where he had the minerals and so we walked into an oil and gas opportunity right off the bat and we did that shot seismic um ended up doing it was in the city of arlington okay and ended up doing a whole closed loop system where we did fresh water supply water um we did the produced we did the, the crude and the gas and then we sold that to range okay so got into you know as i was wanting to get into to real estate got right into oil and gas and so yeah instantly. i mean that there it was like have been a, a hotter year, place though right yeah, yeah yeah it was it was good it was good timing went off on my own after that and you know th those were the times when the guys like double y'all mentioned double eagle earlier you know we were we were all leasing land and, and selling it packaging up and selling it so i had a, a good family friend that was a geologist so we worked in the Eagleford, we worked in Marcellus, the Utica, um, did a bunch of stuff out in, in uh, the Delaware Basin before many people were out there. Um, what I found was I kept getting older and older and, and our competition kept getting younger and younger. And so, and everybody had better contacts than I did. So I, I tried to get into as many businesses as I possibly could to kind of, you know, sustain the ups and downs. And so got into, had a land business for a while. Obviously, like I talked about, we did, we did brokerage work. Um, we also did built pads, so construction. We did pads and, and uh, pipelines and all kinds of stuff like that. And then also had a, uh, a spooling business where we spooled submersible pumps. So did all that and, um, I, you know, that was still a little boring for me at, at times. Um, we, we had done a bunch of work with Brigham in the past. And so we had a, a permit, uh, as I, I kind of back up a little bit, when we were doing land work, a lot of times we would uh, permit these disposal wells and sell them, right? So we would either keep a royalty in them or, you know, do whatever we could, whether it was working interest or anything. And it was, you know, back then it was purely a, a service business, right? It was all on trucks and uh, there was no pipelines. Um, Brigham had just come back from selling their stuff in the Bakken and been really successful both in the upstream side and the midstream side and had built out a, a water network up in that area. So we had a permit um, around some of that new acreage they bought in Pecos County and went to Bud and Eric Hoover and said, hey, uh, we've got this permit. We we think that there's an opportunity to build out some infrastructure in this area. You guys have just done this. What do you think about partnering with us? And uh, I think it was either Bud or Eric said, you know what, absolutely, we'll do it. And they wrote us a check for 40% of the well right then. And we kind of helped build out some of that system that that now is Diamondback system. Um, I was just kind of on my own at the time. And I said, you know, if I'm, if I'm going to do this and do it successfully, I need probably an engineer to help me do it. And one of my good friends that I hunt and fish with a lot, his name's Michael Wrights. He goes by Chop. He was a Diamondback at the time and had done uh, – Petroleum engineer from, from LSU had done um, completions and done drilling, and he was just doing their water business at the time, starting starting with their stuff over at Diamondback in Midland Basin. And I 
talked him into joining. I still had the spooling company at the time, so I couldn't really afford to pay him. So I had to, I had to pay him through that spooling company, and he was making more money than, than I was at the time. Um, but anyway, that, that gave me that engineer and that credibility to kind of go out and grow the business, and that's kind of that's kind of where we went. We, we started off with friends and family to raise that other 60% of that well. Um, we had some other permits in and around south of Pecos and Reeves County. So went and, and drilled those and and realized that we, you know, we were, we were kind of gaining some steam and, and we, you know, got some contracts with some pretty good operators and um, went out to raise some money. As we as we found out, the friends and family deal was pretty tough. Um, equity at the time was still looking at that as complete service business. And but we got lucky and, and um, TPH Partners had a uh, water transfer company it was Bighorn. I think Bighorn was the name of the company. And they were looking for another asset to put in there with it. And so um, Kurt Schaefer was uh, was our kind of sponsor at the time. And we ended up doing a deal with them. They bought out our friends and family group and gave us some equity. And I think they – it was pretty funny because I think the first commitment we had was like $35 million, which for the water space and the midstream side was was a pretty big deal. And we spent that in four months. And so Kurt kind of right, right at that point was like, you know, we, we – we need to rethink how big we're going to get this deal. And we'd been talking to Five Point at the time, and um, they said, look, you you know, you guys get your contract base up. Because at the, at the time when we first started that, it was, you know, to get a one or three or five-year contract, the ones and threes were there, but anything past three years was was pretty hard to get. And so said, you know, beef up your contract, contract base, and we'll talk about it. And so a year, it was a year on the date, I think, that we did the TPH deal, we ended up doing a deal with five points so five point came in and bought out tph and kind of grew it from there so so for the benefit of our our audience tell us a little bit about Waterbridge and why you're critical to the upstream market and and how you have identified yourself more in the midstream business as opposed to an upstream service company you know i think if you think about the history of water obviously it, it was much more of a service business. It was trucks uh, picking up water at, at tanks, independence, mom and pops, and then going to a, any SWD that was along the highway and, and disposing. You know, as you saw the development in the Southern Delaware and Northern Delaware in particular, the volumes of water that came with those massive horizontal wells was just far greater than what you could handle with a truck. Um, and so that's, you know, what was the impetus behind uh, Brigham saying, we're going to do what we did in the Bakken, which we're going to build, you know, three pipes in a ditch. We're going to handle water, make sure it's all, you know, built out. Well, we've just took that early concept that they and Jason and Chop had and continued to expand it. So Chop. we've gone from then. It's a great nickname. A great I, name. I've never been called anything that cool. I know. Chop. Well, it's, a it's a terrible story behind it too. So it's not, it's not even that fun. So, <laughs> it sounds cool though. Yeah, it yeah, sounds it cool. Does yeah. Sound yeah. cool. Yeah. Sorry, Chop. It is. It's His awesome. name's cooler than he is. Yeah. Though, so. <laughs> yeah. So we've grown then from, from that beginning to this massive network of interconnected saltwater disposal wells, ponds, and, what it's enabled us to do for producers is that we can handle any of the surges and growth in their uh, in their volumes. Right. Because if you go and frack a a pad, the amount of water we're talking about is is just enormous. It could be eighty thousand barrels a day or more in instantaneous spot, and you've got to be able to handle that day one. 
And to do that, you need large scale infrastructure. You need to be able to move volumes around. And what we've built now in the Southern Delaware is a system that's over 800 miles of, of large diameter pipe. We've got 54 uh, facilities, 64 facilities connected up there. 100 uh, 1.8 million barrels a day of capacity so that so victoria thinks she's the only one that does research that's not true i did research and my first note was lots of infrastructure there seems to be a ton of infrastructure that you guys have that does anybody else and you know is there anybody else like this that has that type of infrastructure set up it seems unique not in the southern delaware okay. in the southern delaware we've been we were first mover we moved very fast and we were able to consolidate a, a very large platform. Right. So there's really not many competitors of size in the Southern Delaware. If you move north, Northern Delaware is much more competitive. You have Solaris, who has a, a large system up there. They were one of the early movers in that market. NGL Energy. And then, and then OWL. Yeah, right. So there, there's there's three groups that were in the OWL guys were, were very early on too. That's you right. Know, Chris and his team. They may started. have been really one of the first. Yeah, up there absolutely. Doing it. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Chris Cooper. Yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah. Good yeah. Yeah. They they did a good job, but that market is just much more competitive. Um, we are moving up there. We have our first investments uh, in that region, or we've got a new equity commitment to go after it. So. Um, we're coming. What, what would you say your, your all's limiting factor is in terms of growth? I mean, obviously, you're you're taking the trucks off the road and building pipeline infrastructure, which has a number of benefits. You know, from a just a general safety perspective, given what what the Permians like to drive in. But then, you know, ESG components, et cetera. What's kind of your limiting factor? Is it is it is it is it customers or is it location of, of disposal wells if you're actually disposing versus recycling? Can you t give us a little insight about that? I mean, I would say our limiting factor is it's got to be customers, right? I mean, we, the, the really the only our, – our main competition other than the, the two or three companies that we just mentioned are the customers and them doing it themselves, right? So that was kind of our, our, our biggest – task when we started the company was to to earn the trust of the of the customers right and that's a big i mean that's a big thing to earn i mean that you're you're taking away something that if they it's not like gas right you can flare gas if you can't if you don't have takeaway i mean the, the water you've got to have somewhere to put it and to steve's point if um with the multiple completions and and now with slick water slick water fracks i mean it's it's at a level now to where trucking is not an option period so if you're not there day one with your pipes in the ground then then you've got issues i think what's also different about water is where water responsibility exists within the producers you know gas and oil has has been so established as kind of part of the marketing group they were always thinking about the downstream because it's more of a commodity water was always thought of as just something to deal with. So responsibility for water always exists, uh, has existed historically within the operations team. They don't want to let go of anything. All right. They, they just know if something goes wrong. It's their head. When you say so, operations team, are you, do you mean operators or, or uh, operations team of what? Of the producer. Okay. Yeah. yeah so, like in the asset level. Okay. Completion right. guys in the production, in the production right. guys. Okay. Yeah. They want to control every part of that, and which makes sense because that is such a critical factor in their success and their ability to – it's also a big factor in their cost. Um, water, particularly in the southern Delaware because the water cuts are so high, 
it is a big component of LOE and something they have to manage. So convincing those guys to trust us and let it go, you know, some of the early customers that we had like Concho and, and Centennial, it was a piecemeal process. It was, okay, I'll give you this small contract. I'll give you another small contract. And over time, Jason and Chop and the team never missed anything. Didn't miss a deadline, didn't miss a barrel and earn that trust. And next thing you know, we're ha handling all of the water for those customers and we're doing long-term contracts. It sounds unique. I mean, it, it sounds like there's still a lot of, and I, and I don't mean to discount the private equity experience coming into it, but it does sound like the company still holds pretty hardcore to its entrepreneur mindset. Is that, is that something that's talked about yeah. inside the company? You have no, to. No, 100%. I mean, yeah. that, that's, that's 100% in our culture, right? Yeah. I mean, you've, you've got to be able to, to move quickly. Um, I think that we've ingrained that entrepreneurial spirit in just about every employee that we have. And I think everybody is excited to, to, to be there and, and, and work in that environment. How, right? how do you do that? How do you ingrain that in your your people? We, I mean, we we got to you know give everybody a lot of leeway, right, and let them make decisions. And I think that's something that um, a lot of these bigger companies, you know, kind of keep keep their employees from doing. Um, our guys have got to be able to react both from a field level and from a corporate level. Yeah, interestingly, we've we've shrunk the size of the senior team from the time that that I joined and, yeah. and Jason was there. We've probably cut the size of the senior team down by 60 percent and yet been able to push that responsibility out more to that next you know level of of, uh, of people to go do their job and be responsible and that makes a big difference i mean it starts obviously on hiring you know we we hire people who have that drive and want to be part of something that's that's growing and changing and are excited by that and um and that's an environment that some people do really really well in yeah. but it's also one where if it's not a match you know it pretty quickly and you have to make a change yeah and i, I think it starts the field too right it's it's empowering those guys in the field to make decisions without feeling like they've got to walk it all the way up the top and we have we have been so lucky that our operations team because there's you know when we started this in 2013 there wasn't a there wasn't a book about how to operate a, a water system right there's a lot of this stuff that we've had to figure out on our own and it's been it's been impressive to see you know how far we've come in the last seven to eight years it's it's pretty insane. i mean that, that's an eventful seven or eight years i didn't mean to cut you there david but that seven or eight years there's you've been through some times yeah yeah, yeah. yeah a lot of times it's been a lot but it, you know what's great is there's still so much we can do. Absolutely. And, you know, our business is continuing to evolve. Water business, still somewhat in early stages. You know, uh, if you look at Southern Delaware Basin, you know, there you have the produced water side where, you know, you're taking water from the production and dealing with it. But then you've got the frack water supply side. More and more of those are kind of morphing together because we're recycling more taking produced water, delivering that back to producers for them to reuse. That is something that's going to be more prevalent as we go forward. And so this is going to become more of a distribution system business over time than a disposal system. We'll take water from one producer, our network's entirely uh, networked together. 
we can deliver anywhere across our system at frac rates to these producers. They can take that. We can help them treat it to get it to whatever spec they want, or they take it raw and deal with it themselves. And that's going to be part of the future um, in the very near future. And I think that we'll continue to evolve from there. You know, empowering our, our employees, you know, one example is we have this young engineer that we, you know, hired out of Pioneer who, you know, one of the smartest guys I've ever come across and uh, basically went and, and was looking at the field operations and how everybody measured volumes and tried to, to make sure that we had better data. He developed an app, pushed it out to everybody's phones started getting uh, data directly from the field and then comparing that to measurement data we had. They've continued to evolve that so that now we've applied artificial intelligence to be able to predict those volumes much greater. And what they've done, and it's been a very short period of time, you know, six, six or eight months, yeah. and it's been just phenomenal. So now we go show our customers that we have much better data on their water flows and what's going to happen than they could ever have. And they're blown away by that, what we can do. That's in the last eight months you've developed right. in-house. That's right. Yeah. So it was it's kind impressive. of a, yeah, it was, it's just super impressive. I mean, they, they, we've got a, uh, with Hayden and his team and, and, and we, we brought all of our own automation in-house too. So we've got our own control room. Um, we brought a guy named Charles Lame in. And, and so just, just the data itself, I mean, we're, we're we are, we're, we are we have to have that data right and what we found because of the 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 networks out in the field uh are just unreliable a lot of times right and so we're putting our own network in we're putting our own data sources in with the app with the, the wave tool these guys have put together and then with our own automation i mean we we have found um just our accurateness on on billing is is, is improved what 15 20 percent that's right yeah in the last eight months yeah, yeah. that is a very impressive yeah, they, uh, number y'all y'all jumped into what i was what i was going to ask you about and you know what type of technology have you integrated in the business and i think one of the one of the trends that i see from the operators is looking to get a better handle on their cost structure in a much more timely manner where historically they used to like to play somewhat of a shell game with the service contractors because they were you know, trying to live off, gain some extra income off the float by, you know, delaying, you know, payables 30, 60 days. But it it seems like there's a trend. People are wanting to get a handle on their cost a lot better um, in understanding that, but also to the data so that they can think about their their entire supply chain. When I think about your business, you you're, you you touch them on the completion side, and you certainly touch them on the production side. And having having better data in an environment that is that is really uh, constrained by the volatility of commodity prices, you've got to be very lean and mean and efficient and thoughtful about decisions you're going to make. And, and I think it's, it's interesting to see the industry, not only in y'all's sector, but in other, you know, service slash midstream sectors that, that support the upstream market, how they are integrating technology to help people make better decisions and ultimately help you guys run a even better business as well. And continuously improve. A quick word from our sponsors, and then we're right back to the show. Prang & Associates, the global energy search leader. Prang & Associates is the world's leading executive search firm totally dedicated to the energy industry 
Over our 39 years, we have assisted more than 750 management teams and boards in 75 countries and conducted nearly 3,600 engagements. For more information, please visit prang.com. Daniel Energy Partners, in-basin research you can trust. A leading provider of U.S. oil field research known for its original boots-on-the-ground research approach as well as its famous barbecue events. Daniel Energy Partners utilizes both its extensive network of top oil field professionals and frequent in-basin field tours to provide real-time market intelligence. Visit DanielEP.com for more information. Galtway Marketing. Answer this question. What makes your company different? You have seven seconds to catch a customer's attention. Galtway Marketing can build your brand and craft your message for maximum impact across all your marketing efforts. Visit galtwaymarketing.com slash 0360 to bring your company into the 21st century. Thank you to our sponsors. And now back to the show. It's been great for us because it's reduced our, you know, it's, it's enabled us to dial in our operating costs and, you know, make sure that we're pushing volumes along our system to the most efficient places. And it's had a, it's had a huge impact just on, on that side of it. And then when you think about our customers, we've only, so far, we've only showed this to a few customers, but you're exactly right. One of the things that they have a hard time predicting is their water cost. They don't know how much necessarily each of these wells is going to flow. And, you know, they can have predictions about it, but we can actually take all the data we have and the AI that we've developed and probably give them a much better sense for what their, their future costs will be depending on what their plans are. And so we're actually, you know, talking to some customers about, you know, you know rolling that out to them and, and enabling them to access that and us to be able to work with them on that front. I think it's too interesting uh, as well from the standpoint of, you know, this kind of emerging trend around ESG disclosures, uh, you know, the operators, at the end of the day, ultimately, you're like paper general contractors. They they self-perform some stuff, but for the most part, they depend on their partners to to help them understand things. And you know, one of the one of the big issues or areas that people are asking for greater insight, which ties into economic efficiency and environmental footprint and all that, is you know the consumption of water, the utilization of water, and in uh, the production of water. And you know they because they don't necessarily do anything and they rely on the partners, those partners that I think can give them insight in terms of the impact of their supply chain, whether it's related to water or emissions from, you know, uh, diesel burn or natural gas burn or whatever it is. Uh, I think that's going to be key. And I know that's one of the things the Energy ESG Council, which is a nonprofit I started to kind of help educate both private and public companies broadly beyond what, guidance SASB and TCFD and others put out there and kind of drive the narrative for the industry. The feedback we get from the operators, particularly the private and small ones is where do we, where do we really, how are we going to manage and measure this? And the answer is, well, you can go spend the money or you can find the partners that ultimately have the ability to give you that data and give you that insight to your supply chain that you don't otherwise have. And yeah, it's great for pointing out environmental stewardship but at the same time at the end of the day we're talking about economics here 
And and the reality is technology and other things are going to help drive that economic story, which is ultimately going to drive that environmental impact study, whether that's a positive or a negative. So have, is is any of what y'all are doing kind of playing to that 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 broader need that's that seems to be growing? Yeah, it's a great point. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, one thing that we have done a lot lately, so obviously the ESG thing is, is huge, right? I mean, and I, I'll, I'll speak to that and let kind of Steve take it, but we, we do track the, the amount of trucks that we've taken off the road, right? And we can, we can draw an exact amount of emissions that, that, were, that were pulled off the road because of that, because of the amount of barrels we're taking on pipe. So given the operators those true numbers and, and that's something that's hard data that they can take back and say, you know, to, to their folks and say, this is, this is, these are real numbers, right? I mean, we're moving, you know, moving a million barrels a day of water through twenty different operators, and that's a that's a lot of trucks. Yeah, and you think about that too—the number of trucks, you know, going to that. Um, in the general operating where you are um, operating in, you know, the infrastructure there is is beaten down and tough, and there's a lot of capital that needs to be put into bringing some of these roads back to, you know, decent operating, safe operating uh conditions and i think uh the interesting thing by by taking that pressure off those roads i mean obviously you're going to have heavy truck traffic regardless but not to the extent that probably we've seen in the past and uh i think that's a that's a pretty valid point somebody who's gotten to see the number of auto incidents and unfortunate fatalities and significant uh, the, the unique accidents. thing too about what we've done with our businesses and you kind of you touched on this a little bit earlier, but disposal wells were always a hard, disposal was a real estate player, right? You're looking for a hard corner. So you're looking for some of the best intersections that you possibly can get. And in these, in these areas, that, that was cr creating a ton of, of traffic incidents, right? And so we can be in field since everything's on pipe now. We can be in field off the roads. And so we're utilizing lease roads, not these main roads. Um, so that's, a, I mean, that, that alone's a big impact. And that, that, that impacts our crude haulers too, right? When we're, when we're hauling crude out of there, they're not on the main highways. They're inside lease roads and so it's one, one of the reasons that we started this podcast was to tell stories that never get told. To me, that's a story that's not getting told anywhere. And, and, and with all respect to whatever you guys have done with your press and uh, marketing of that, are, is that a story you guys are actively telling anybody but your customers? You know, it's, it's, it's interesting. I've been thinking about this a lot lately. And if you look at a lot of our peers, all of us are trying to tell that story. We just haven't done a great job of it yet. You know, NGL, I think, has done a good job in on their website and the way they talk about their business on the water side of talking about the impact. Um, Solaris, we know, is 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 doing a lot on their side to try to position it. And we're going to be doing more of the same. I think we have been less uh, you know, leading with that as as our branding. But if you look at it, the water business actually is one of the few subsectors of energy where you really can have that kind of, of impact. Um, you know, there's, I think everybody overlooks what the energy industry does already. That, Definitely. You know, it's arguably the safest industry there is. Doesn't ever get much of a, of a notice. I think people focus so much on the E part and they don't focus as much on the fact that energy employees are better paid, better taken care of, it's safer. I mean, we invest in safety. So that S part 
kind of gets glossed over in in uh, you know them pigeonholing us as as a dirty industry. There are ways that we can work with our customers and and make sure that we're all being as clean as we can. Recycling, you know, water use is one of those things that was going to be a a, a greater trend as we go forward, and I think a positive one. Um, even though the water being used is not it's not water anybody's going to go drink. This is not clean water. It's you know coming from you know thousands of feet down. It's very saline, difficult to treat to any usable spec other than for fracking. That being said, it is something that is very visible and something that people have a visceral reaction to. And I think we can reduce that as part of the the narrative by recycling more. And that's good for cost for the producers. I, I actually yeah. think that you have one of the more public issues that could be picked up by people that ordinarily would be looking to tear our industry down. And I mean, where environment, I mean, one of the things that David always talks about uh, on the show is, you know, the oil, you mentioned hunting already. It's full of people that enjoy hunting, fishing outdoors. And, you know, we, we do take care of the lands that we're a part of and whether that's personal or with our companies. And, you know, water is a hot button topic, right? It's easy to to point at an oil company, I'm not pointing at you specifically, just person X and say, hey, you're not doing it well. And it it is, a, I would be interested to know what traction you guys pick up with that for the industry, because I think that's a very easy thing that both sides of the aisle can get. The show is is apolitical, right? We, we've had a couple politicians on here and, and anybody that comes on the show is like, look, we, I want both sides to do well. I don't care who you are. We're not looking for red meat from anybody. Just be reasonable, do reasonable things, be good for the environment, be good for the industry. And that's what we want to support. So I would like to do a follow-up on this later on just to find out what your efforts yield in regard to are people paying attention to this? Is this something that that they actually care about? Is is what kind of because I look at these stats. I mean, Victoria, I, I her, her stats were pretty handy as I'm coming through this. You know, and you mentioned the trucks on the road and the the heavy infrastructure that you guys have that does keep like those are I always joke with people, anybody, you know, how many lives has Uber saved for people not drinking and driving? Countless. It's a shocking number of, you know, 21 to or 81, right? Pick a number of people that don't drink and drive or fewer drink and drive because of uh, Uber. And you just wonder, like, and that, and Uber, by the way, touts that when they go talk about, like, we're saving lives. I wonder how many lives have been saved because of pipelines versus trucks and how many, uh, you know, the the emissions and... Completely agree. I mean, if you look at a lot of the, the political discussion around pipelines, what people are trying to do I think ultimately is say all hydrocarbons are bad. Right. So if we can stop the hydrocarbons or make it more expensive, then our alternatives will be, you know, relatively cheaper and, and, and more uh, attractive. I think what they miss is they are favoring a less safe solution in the environmental side safety side from from uh you know traffic accidents or even train you know rail accidents the instances of pipeline leaks whether it's you know crude or gas or or water if you measure that relative to the amount of product that's being moved and what it does for the economy 
it is such a uh, a statistically small number. Uh, I wouldn't. I don't want to ever minimize it by saying it's insignificant, but there's cost benefit to everything that we do, Um, and I think that's something that gets lost in the narrative a a little bit. You know, we think the industry has historically taken a stance of kind of hiding from this, and I understand why it's difficult to talk about. The the other risk you run, which is something we want to balance, is you can also look like you're greenwashing everything, right? We don't want to, we can't hide the fact that, you know, we are part of the U.S., you know, resource revolution. We have become an exporting nation for the first time ever. We are energy independent, and yet... It's coming from hydrocarbons, and that well, is e- not as... Steve, even the way you phrased the question <clears throat> needs to change. You said we can't hide from the fact. We, we shouldn't. Right. We, we are right. literally right. making the world move. Absolutely. And we're well, doing it in ways that are efficient. We should be talking about it. We're also driving a low cost of energy, making modern life possible. And, you know, so you give the guys the little bit of ground and say, okay, we can, we can talk about energy production, but nobody's come out with, with how are we replacing plastics, chemicals? And there's not a, you know, solar and wind while neat technologies and that's coming along. I think, when I talk to other senior energy executives, their their opinion on on alternative renewable energy sources is, look, we need it all. The reality is there's still a significant part of the world that's still asleep. And energy demand, despite the COVID blip, is going to come back and it's only going to increase. And the most interesting thing about our business, you know, there's all this pressure for the Paris Climate Accords and all this stuff. I thought it was really fascinating. Conoco came out somewhat. It just felt like they had to mention that, uh, taking only responsibility for themselves, but not consumers, is that we're already exceeding what is called for in the Paris Climate Accords. And the big issue and the the elephant in the room, nobody's talking about are all the other countries, not to get off on a on a tangential conversation there. It's a slippery but, slope. It's easy yeah, to Yeah, it's a slippery <laughs> slope. But I think, I think you know, you, you do have to get a little wild and proud about what the industry has done and, and, and the low cost of energy relative to everything else. And also, too, when you start peeling back the layers of the onions, everybody's having fun with facts and figures. And we've heard recently you, you can't, uh, uh, you can't have your own facts. And, it, it's a shame, and and I'm hopeful through what we're doing with the Energy ESG Council and bringing all the various trade groups and the upstream and midstream service community all together to get on the same page, even though everybody's got to survive on their own and, and hold themselves accountable and, and build resilient and sustainable businesses, they can all come together and, and help draw um, and, and put out the common narrative about the virtues of the, the, you know, energy business in general, principally the oil and gas industry, uh, that's got to happen because otherwise, um, I think we, by, by going individual paths and, and not coming together, we're almost working against ourselves as opposed to working along with each other. And the, the opportunity to, 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 uh, meet everybody on the street and, and build a better mousetrap is going to be there. But, 
there is some unity that needs to come together and, and educate the, all the various stakeholders, the institutional investors, the customers, the general public. Uh, if not, I think I think we'll, we're going to have some some really tough times ahead of us. But I am amazed and surprised, and I'll shut up in two seconds, and I'll ask you guys about this, is how the industry, even, even without regulation, self-regulates itself in a way, either due to uh, investor sentiment, public sentiment, and then just the need to drive a better mousetrap in an in a economically strained environment. I mean, what do you guys have any thoughts or opinions about any any proposed uh, regulation that, or or uh, policy policy that could it's be challenging your business? For Steve. You know, it's uh, I think what well we all know this this will be a, a big you know couple of weeks here see what happens, but I think that one thing that does have traction that is going to become a reality fairly soon is, is flaring regulation. Um, I think that's the one place that Republicans and Democrats may not have enough overlap, but I think Republicans are ready to make that deal to forestall more extreme, uh, measures. And so I, I would be very surprised if there's not some flaring legislation whether state or or national um, through the EPA going through in the next couple of years. That is, you know, arguably a good thing in many ways. Um, there are big costs to it, though. Um, but otherwise, you know, the idea of, you know, right now everyone being afraid of a fracking ban on federal uh, lands and things like that, that is so difficult to do and improbable, um, I think over any, you know, time frame, um, you know, that, that, that we would forecast out for that. I just don't see it happening. At least I hope that's, that's the case, but, you know, I think that we have to get ahead of it. Like you said, we have to be self-policing to some extent and the majors, you know, and the larger companies have really driven that home. I mean, they've, they've had to, to some extent. Um, but, uh, I think they have done a good job of, uh, being more, um, uh, constrained on, on some of those things. Shell and others already, uh, try very, very hard to reduce their flaring, you know, not because they are told to or, or made to, but because that's, you know, part of the thing that they have to, to report back to their investors. Investors are going to drive most of this ESG um, initiatives over the near term, and it's having a a rapid impact on the industry. That's that's one of the things we had a guy on the show, and he said uh, ESG. He says it's much less of a green problem than a red problem. Mm -hmm. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. And and I thought that was a pretty uh, smart way of saying it. And because you you've already mentioned the E part is much more taken care of than people think of the the s part is much more taken care of than than people think of the g part does need refining and it does need uh you know there's there's new leadership though coming into these companies that are you know you guys have been through this eight years how have the eight i know what the last eight years have looked like to you it's been a lot and i'm sure you know you know we were talking before the show uh, about just being conservative so you can have the cash to remain and, and stay alive in these situations uh, you know, one of the things I want to talk, David has, or you guys have all brought this up. I'm a big believer in strength in numbers. Is there a 
organization that you guys are part of that you feel is doing a good job to advocate for your, I guess, corporate uh, needs isn't the right word. What's the word I'm looking for? Just, just, just as a as a whole for the uh, industry, which you you know we've that we've actually um, our previous CEO was was uh, was much more involved in those things and was really good about it. We have probably not been you know pulling our weight on that front and being involved on an industry wide basis or um, and it is something that we've recently been been talking about. We need to get more involved. Well, I'm going to challenge you on that because you know we we mentioned John Berger before the episode. He was the the Sonova. So if you hear this, go back and listen to him, his his episode. Very sharp guy. He's doing a phenomenal job advocating for his industry right now. And that was one of the things that we noticed, kind of prepping for his interview, was this guy is everywhere and where he's carrying the banner and doing a good job. So I, I do it just as friends of your, you know, I'm enjoying the, the, obviously the interview and the podcast here, but you guys have a story and there is something to be told. So I kind of just challenge you as, um, as an, a group that would like these stories told more, uh, you know, obviously the podcast is going to be here for you guys. And really just that, that, uh, positive work that you guys are doing. But if there's anything that you guys can do, it does sound like this is a story that needs to be told more. So let, let us know if we can help. But at the same time, I hope I you guys get out that. there a little bit more and tell this. Yeah. yeah I appreciate, appreciate that. that for sure. Yeah. And, and, you know, when we talk to our, our peers and, you know, the ones we've mentioned, NGL, Solaris and Al and uh, in particular, I mean, we're all friends. We, we all get no, along yeah, really well. Very, very small community. It's a very of, small community. Yeah. And it's interesting. Somebody mentioned to me recently that we all ought to be working together um, to define where this industry is going, because what we've found is, you know, no knock on anybody else in the industry, but we are kind of the leaders of the industry. We are the ones who are evolving the way water is, is being handled and in between the four of us will manage a huge portion sure. of the the water um, in the in the largest basin in well, in the U.S. The line is if you don't tell your story, that someone else will. That's yeah, right. Right. Oh, and you absolutely. guys, you have a phenomenal story that needs to be told. So appreciate that. Yeah, I like it. I like it. Well, I mean, uh, what else we got? We could keep going on this. I. Oh yeah. No, we we can talk about this all day. I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> so I I, I, do, I echo Josh's comments. I think y'all are y'all are doing a a fine job in watching you grow, you know, over the last several years, which have been pretty impressive. And I've seen some uh some folks try to try to get into the game. One question I do have is around consolidation. Obviously we're seeing some consolidation in the marketplace right now with customers. One, is that a good thing or a or a challenging thing for you guys? One question. But do you see any consolidation uh happening in your space as well? Um is it necessary? Some thoughts or that. feedback there? Um, so the consolidation on the EMPs, right? I mean, I think we've all uh, have, have seen this for the last three to five years that it, it's needed, right? Um, I, did, I didn't expect it to be in, in these times, but um, it seems like it's, it's still the best thing that, you know, for the industry, for sure. Um, as far as is it, is it good for us? I mean, I think, you know, we've, Concho is one of our biggest customers. Um, Concho is also one of Solaris's biggest customers. Um, and that kind of leads into the consolidation of, of our space too, right? So um, there, you know, there's probably, there's there's two public entities that, that do what we do right now, and that's NGL and Western. Um, we we talk about this all the time, and there's, there's 
there's a limited amount of equity uh, in our space to continue to grow. And this is a business that requires a lot of equity because of everything we've talked about, right? It's the, the amount of infrastructure. It's continue to handle these, these large fracks, these large, you know, multi-pad designs. And um, so I think it'll be, I think it'll be interesting. I, I do think that there are some synergies with a couple of our companies that, that uh, would fit really well together. Asset wise would fit really well together. I think everybody's done a good job of, of uh, kind of staying in their lanes. Right. And, and we, you know, as Steve mentioned earlier, we we focused really hard on the Southern Delaware because we didn't have any competition really. Um, we we were able to consolidate we were able to to and really it, it's more of a from an operator standpoint once you gain that trust you've got to figure out a way to integrate their assets into your network and that that's what's going to be the the challenging thing right i think is is it's it, we we've seen that it's not easy i mean the, not all these assets are created equally and but, but is technology helping you kind of help them absolutely. understand that as well because i i i've I understand, you know, we're starting to see some more AI and machine learning come into play involved with a couple of different companies that are that are kind of providing that as a service to both contractors and operators. And it seems like those service companies that are able to come in and provide insight that operators don't have or maybe they don't have as accurately kind of helps bridge the gap and kind of helping them see the values. Are, are y'all utilizing what y'all have developed for that? We are. I mean, it, as, as we said earlier, it's this is new technology for us. Um, the integration side, integrating operators' networks into ours is something that it's not new to us. Um, it, and and there's been a lot of a lot of companies that have stubbed their toe on that. Um, I do think going forward, the you know, having our own infrastructure, having our own automation, uh, the AI piece of this, the the wave tool. There's there's just a lot of things that that we can show the companies that, as uh, as from an asset standpoint, is not necessary, right? I mean, there's there's just I think there's a lot of capex avoidance in the future because of yeah. that. Well, if you if you think about you know these basins now and how they need to be developed, it's really a land game more than anything else. So consolidation, whether it's trading you know, plots of land, leases, and trying to block up areas, or whether it's consolidating neighboring properties or companies, being able to efficiently plan for a more of a manufacturing approach to development, which is where all of this has, has trended, you, it takes so much planning and so much infrastructure, and you have to have blocky positions to do that. So it really does benefit companies to consolidate up for that purpose, if no other. You, you can't get the same with recycling too. Yeah, right? I mean, it, it, you need critical mass for recycling. Yeah, you need to have all of it there. You can't go drill a two mile lateral if you only have one section, you know, or half a section, and you don't have the rest of it. You've right. got to be able to trade and make these blocks. So there's a land component to it, and then on our side, there's also a, you know, there's an operational and, and CapEx savings that is important. You know, you don't want to go out and, and duplicate or triple the amount of infrastructure in an area and be inefficient about that. And there is that risk by, by, by all of us, you know, competing so heavily. You'll mention Concho, their, their client as well. And one of the most impressive things about them as well as a number of their you know, neighboring operators is, you know, you see the 
the uh, investment bankers that post the acquisitions where where either cash or stock actually changes hand. But the number of of cash cash less, um, you know, land swaps that they've done, as well as a number of others, you know, guys blocking up their acreage, is that is was nothing short of extraordinary. But is that is that something you guys see in your own business, or are are, you, are there any land swaps as it relates to you know, right of way, et cetera, for your systems or y'all. I think that's less likely in our business. I think for better or worse, we're still in that land grab mode. Um, It is very, very competitive, particularly as you get into, you know, the, the Northern part of the, of the Southern Delaware and up into New Mexico. And it's just going to be a little bit cutthroat for a while. Yeah, um, we we are seeing some synergies though. I mean, we're we're seeing some uh, some areas where you know some of our smaller competitors are are looking for a uh, interruptible type tie in with us uh, versus spending the capex to you know to put in a, a system that's probably only needed for a short term, right? So we are we are seeing a little bit of that. You know, we we joke all the time if we weren't in such a massive land grab three or four years ago, us and Eagle Claw and, and Oryx would have probably all got together and, and bought a bunch of right away together and saved a fortune, right? But that just wasn't the case. But I, I do think, um, you know, things slowing down has, has helped that a lot. It's not ideal for, for any of us, the, the slowdown, but it, it really has allowed us to really think about the way we buy right away, the way we we plan out development, and I think it's a lot of the operators do the same thing. And it goes back to that manufacturing mode that Steve mentioned. It's, I, I think, I think if you're going to be in this business, you have to have somewhat of a contrarian view as well as an optimist view on the yeah. on the on the space. So, yeah. what month did you? What month did you guys start in 2013? September, I think. September 13. I've got a two part question. I wanted to, you know, I I'm an entrepreneur as well. I mean, this I started in June of 13. And it's been, that's why I keep coming back to that. I know what you guys, or at least I know the market that you guys yeah. have been through. And so I, to Steve, you know, my question to you is what has been the hardest thing over the last eight years? And then Jason, when, what has been the most surprising thing over the last eight years? I'd like to take, uh, Steve, what has been the hardest thing over the last eight years? Well, we, we probably have very different perspectives on this because from in 2013, I was starting Pentex and we were then, you know, getting ready, you know, uh, to go public. And at that time there was already a little bit of a, um, a crack in the capital markets for MLPs, which we were going to be, we were just a pure gathering and processing company. And, you know, the volatility that we've seen in the capital markets, um, has been a real challenge. And that's the perspective I come from as Mm -hmm. being a former banker and now, you know, CFO, and where we are right now, um, that's particularly a, a problem. And that's all the more reason for... <laughs> it's a very perfect way to say it. Yeah, it's, uh, it's all the more reason to have consolidation, okay. right? We don't need as many companies out there because there aren't enough people who want to own them. And they're not going to own multiple. So people are going to start picking their positions, already have. In many cases, that's a position out of energy. Um, But who's left looking at energy, they need to, they're going to favor consolidated uh, positions. 
So to me, it's been that volatility and the changes that we've seen over that period of time from 2013 to now has just been a roller coaster. And it makes it very, very hard to plan your business. Private equity made a lot of investments in 2013 that they still own in 2020, and they have no ability to exit anytime soon. So what was a five-year flip, you know, private equity model. We probably lost 20% of our audience right there. I'm sure. We probably just turned <laughs> off the, yeah, the power button on their radio as they're driving. Well, yeah. I, I think w w the, the answer is all of us now are trying to figure out what we're going to be when we grow up. And it used to be we were likely to be a public company or sell to a public company. It's no longer the obvious answer. Um, and now, I don't have an obvious okay. answer for okay. it now. Now you've got to run a business. Yeah, yeah. yeah. that's right. No, absolutely. For the long term. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And think about all these enterprise risks that that uh, people hadn't thought about. I think that's been the most interesting thing. If you can look at positives and, and all the negativity, COVID, I think, is an example of one of those risks that people had no idea would impact them the way it did. And, and it's certainly been a conversation starter with some of my clients when we're talking about enterprise risk as a whole. They go, oh, that's not going to happen. I go, what year is it? And go, okay, good point. <laughs> okay, we'll, <laughs> right. we'll build that into our board book. We'll, we'll make sure we've got, we're thinking yeah. about that and putting it in, in a perspective and at least having an awareness. And that's what's lacking with so many of these companies. But uh, anyways, I don't want to Cut off uh, no, that's, Jason's that's little, response to the question. Yeah, so yeah what's, what's the on, most surprising thing yeah. over the last eight years, Jason? You know, seven years. For me, I, I would say the amount of equity that's come into our space that came in, in in a very short period of time. I mean, there was, you know, we mentioned Al and and, and Solaris and, and NGO. There was there was only three or four of us around that were that were doing this. And honestly, there's really only three or four of us around that are still doing this today. But for for you know, two years ago, there was just a massive amount of of, of capital that came into the space, and and I, it honestly, it was a, it was a good thing because it allowed us to to monetize a, a piece of our company. It, it allowed you know I think uh, a bigger piece of the capital markets to understand what we were doing. Right, it's telling that story, and it, that story got told through just equity coming into the to the market. Um, yeah, yeah we were the first ones to do a large term loan to the the debt markets. So a syndicated, you know, investor based term loan, we did a billion dollar loan, um, which still kind of baffles me that uh, is, but that was such an education process. You know, so we actually took a very different approach to that. And we had to, we, we essentially left open that process over a much longer period of time and engaged with investors throughout about a six month period and just left our, our phones open for them to come and ask us questions. We made them presentations. We uh, would go see them and update them. A lot of trips even, to New York. Yeah, a lot of trips to New York, even when we weren't in the market technically. Um, and it was because we knew it was just this education effort and we were kind of pioneering that for that market, that particular market. Um, and it for you know now i think people have a much better understanding of it um the problem is in our space though not every story is the same not everybody approaches contracts the same way not everybody approaches operations the same way it is not as uh 
homogenous as natural gas processing. You know, there is a tried and true approach to gas pipelines and processing and market access. And people understand it or they think they understand it very, very well. Water, we don't have a downstream. We are the upstream to the downstream. There's a lot of different factors. There are a lot of different things about our business and everybody can do them differently. So, Yeah, to your point, I think there's a lot of opportunities for continuous improvement, not only in your sector, but every sector. And if you're an investor, I want to invest in the guy who's continuously improving their business because that's going to lead to sustainable investment, ultimately something somebody might want to buy or co-invest in. But it's amazing uh, how uh, it's, 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 it's both a positive and negative. If you're doing all the right stuff, it's, it's a positive. If you're not, it, it'll eventually catch up with well, you. Well, there, there were some there were some horror stories early on, right? I mean, some of these, you know, some of that new equity that came to the market that backed teams that uh, got into to situations both on the operation side and the contractual side, and that that was a, a tough hurdle for a lot of folks to to overcome. Yeah, but I think I think there's some accountability and responsibility that has to Absolutely. come to light. I mean, if you're gonna if you're gonna invest in a in a niche business, you better put your big boy pants on and understand yeah. uh, the nuts and bolts of it, because you will get home cooked if if you don't. Absolutely, and and you should, you know, quite frankly. I mean, but anyways, nobody likes to talk about that. But, <laughs> uh, but that's that's the harsh reality of the business. Not everybody should get a participation trophy. You know, how are you going to do better? The guys that go and, and constantly, you know, work out and train and practice, they're the guys that are in the NFL and the NBA and this, that, and the other. And the other guys, they might have played, you know, in middle school or high school, and that's As far that's as it. they're going. Yeah. Not us, though. We're athletes. Yeah, we're athletes. You worked out today. I did. I actually worked out today. That's good. Ish. You know, now that we've got these cameras in here, I got a, I got a one-year-old a plus Josh is putting a camera on me. There's some, there's some serious some, pressure going on. Yeah, yeah. Tony. I mean, don't feel too much pressure. I have a gym membership that is just currently being funded. It's not getting any use. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of people in there. Yeah, everybody's yeah. got that. Well, so we aren't. I wish we were Joe Rogan. I'd take three more hours here. I really would. But uh, it, one of the questions that we open with is, uh, "Have you ever been on a podcast?" Obviously, no. We, we're not very creative. <laughs> we have two questions: Have you been on a podcast? And if there's any advice that you could give your former self or anybody that uh, is thinking about getting into business um, that you would like to share with the, with our audience that, uh, you know, nuggets of wisdom, things you would have done differently, uh, things you would not want to repeat again, any, anything like that. Two, two questions. That's it. That, those are our star go-tos. Uh, you know, for me, I, I think you kind of nailed it on the head there with the put. You, if you're if you're going to get into a niche business like this, you better put your big boy pants on, right? And and stick to what um, what your goals are and what your plans are, because you know it, it's easy to get derailed. And I think as long as you stick to what you're doing and what you know, um, you can be successful if you if you if you stick at it. Yeah, uh, I think that you know I tend to manage by fear, which is sometimes a good thing. Um, but I, I should always work on, you know, trying to, I, I think not take you, it so you're piercing. managed by fear. You mean you, you, uh, that's, you don't totally mean that. Cause actually I feel like you're very inclusive. Just hearing what we're hearing with the employees managed by fear. You're just what the things that are coming at you. That's right. Cause you're that's not right. walking down the hall, just no, slamming doors. No, no. Not that, that kind of fear. No. 
Yeah, no, not all, not like that. No, it, it, as a matter of fact, it. I think it's it's really that I always, you know, think that the worst is going to happen, and so I, you know, always you know internalize that a lot and the pressure of that yeah. a lot. And this uh, is why we work so well together. Yeah, yeah. Jason doesn't. Yeah. So um, I'm the one who worries, and he's the one who makes it happen. So yeah, I wouldn't say that. Nice. That's that. It does look like a good partnership. Plan, plan, plan for the worst and strategize for the best. Right? Yeah, That's right. No, absolutely. Well, what'd you guys think of your first podcast? It's awesome. You nailed it. Yeah. You guys did a great job. Yeah. So listen, we're going to give you a couple plugs here. You are your website is h number two o letter, letter bridge. O. Letter yeah. o yep. bridge. So it's water bridge, obviously. Yep. Play on h two o bridge. Okay. Uh, dot com. Is there uh, anything else that we want to tell the audience that they should look up? Is there, uh, you mentioned, you guys mentioned something earlier on. I wanted, you said you have a data center. Where is that located? Is that in Houston or? It's in Houston at our, at our corporate office. I bet that's pretty cool. It is cool. Yeah. Love to have you guys out and take a yeah, look at it. Yeah, I'd love to see that. Yeah. Yes, I do want to take you up on that. Do I, you have the, an obnoxiously large screen like uh, uh, got about Cody like and those guys? 35 of them. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Then we definitely want to come. Yeah, see it's that. full. I mean, I mean, it's looks cameras. like the future. You can see. Yeah, absolutely. You can see every every yeah, one of our sites. Looking out. at pipelines. I mean, it's that's pretty impressive. Okay. Yeah. We wanted. To, I wanted to make sure we pointed that out to your customers too that are down here. Yeah. You got, I'm assuming you guys do the customer tours when they want to come check it out. We as do. Well. Yeah. We we love taking you know whether it's customers or potential investors out to the field and yeah. showing them around because the water sector is so new to, to people, right? They really can't visualize what exactly our facilities look like. And I mean, I I'll, I'll be helpful. honest, I want to go see it specifically yeah. for that reason. You know, we didn't touch on that, but yeah. that's, what's one thing that we definitely differentiated ourselves from, from others early on is we just, we kind of changed the design and we thought a lot of it was on our land. And so we, you know, in the past, SWDs uh, have been a bit of an eyesore, mm -hmm. right? And they've been on, on, on folks' ranches for a long time. And it's always a, that one that's got the leak. And so we really took a lot of pride in how we build it and um, and continue to do so. Well, I think you're going to be surprised how many people bring up this podcast to you. Uh, it gets a lot more traction than I know David and I uh, expected. We like it. Uh, we do view it as a responsibility now. At first, it was just kind of a thing that we did. Uh, and that's kind of why just challenging you guys to, because yeah, I do think that what you have is something that uh, can get a lot of positive attention because it is a positive thing. So uh, we'd love to do a follow-up with you guys later on just to find out what what all what tr traction you guys have gained internally and externally on that. So, Absolutely. Yeah, we'd love Anytime. to. Sorry it took so long to to get this all put together. No, I mean, what are we, it's the apocalypse. What yeah, are we doing? That's exactly right. We've got exactly plenty right. of time here. Yeah. <laughs> got our cameras. We look great. <laughs> Hell, let me, I'm looking at the camera now. You did good. At Jonathan back there. How do we look, Jonathan? See, solid. Next time we'll we'll try some Fletch Azul tequila. Yeah. yeah. I, by the way, this is uh, Aaron's shirt too. I am I am becoming. I think I should just get sponsored by like Aaron Marquez directly. Not even Fletch Azul anymore. Is that one of Aaron's? This shirts? is one of his Black shirts. Quail? Black quail. I look great in it. You do. <laughs> yes, yeah, absolutely. So, but yeah, no timing. It, this is what it's about. And really, this podcast is if there's stories that you guys think that we should be telling. Make yeah, listen. You see him trying to. Call he's got blue shoelaces my on. My shoelaces. I look I, I, <laughs> mix, it, I mix it this up. This guy's there. got like he's got like a Skittles bag of shoelace color. I do. He's got purples and blue. I do. I've got the whole rainbow there. <laughs> he's all coordinated. I look good. Yeah. I look like I got dressed in the dark in my office. Same here. So, so, so if there David, do you have anything else before we shut it no, down? I here? just want to say, gentlemen, it's been a pleasure having you on and and I enjoyed the conversation. Hope you guys did as well. I probably talked too much. Now, 
no, you did great. I mean, I really enjoyed the conversation too. Yeah, so here. I'm going to wrap this. us up here if you guys have nothing else. See, here we go. So now I got to go back to the camera, study and focus here. So everybody be, be super cool here. Uh, this is going to wrap up another edition of the Oilfield 360 podcast. We are, again, proud to be in the Fletcher Azul podcast studio. Uh, David, amazing job today. Any letters that you, anybody that didn't like this podcast, send it to David at oilfield360.com. <laughs> and anybody who thought this was the best thing ever, send it to Josh at oilfield360.com. Uh, I don't, I won't read anything negative, so might as well just send it straight to David. But gentlemen, truly good luck to you guys. Uh, sounds like you have got a lot going on and uh, we just wish you the best of luck in finishing off 2020. David, Jonathan, thanks for everything back there. And uh, look us up on all our YouTube channels, all of our social media. And that's it. Have a great day, everyone. Appreciate it. This episode of the Oil Field 360 podcast was brought to you by the following companies. EIV Capital, a growth equity-focused private equity firm, which has been providing capital to the North American energy industry since 2009. The team has extensive experience across the entire energy value chain. We invite you to visit EIVCapital.com and learn how we partner with entrepreneurs to build businesses. Merit Advisors, crafting holistic tax solutions to improve your cash flow and add profit back to your bottom line. When it comes to state and local taxes, Merit is the expert in the oil and gas industry. Visit MeritAdvisor.com. World Oil, for more than 103 years, World Oil has provided global decision makers with coverage of the latest market intelligence and technological advances relating to the upstream oil and gas industry. To subscribe and learn more about these essential resources, please visit worldoil.com slash subscribe. Thank you to our sponsors, Simmons Energy, a division of Piper Sandler, SimmonsPSC.com, Lockton Global Energy and Marine, Lockton.com, Tomahawk Safety, TomahawkSafety.com, Prang & Associates, Prang.com, Daniel Energy Partners, DanielEP.com, EIV Capital, EIVCapital.com, Galtway Marketing, GaltwayMarketing.com, Range Valuation Services, RangeValuationServices.com, Merit Advisors, MeritAdvisor.com, World Oil, WorldOil.com, Fletcher Azul Tequila, FletcherAzulTequila.com. For more information on today's guest and to learn more about our sponsors, please follow us on LinkedIn, Instagram, or at oilfield360.com. Piper Sandler Companies, NYSE PIPR, is a leading investment bank and institutional securities firm driven to help clients realize the power of partnership. Securities brokerage and investment banking services are offered in the U.S. through Piper Sandler & Company, member SIPC and FINRA, in Europe through Piper Sandler Limited, authorized and regulated by the Securities and Futures Commission. Asset management products and services are offered through four separate investment advisory affiliates, U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, SEC-registered Piper Sandler Investment Management, LLC, PJC Capital Partners, LLC, and Piper Sandler and & Company, and Guernsey-based Parallel General Partners Limited, authorized and regulated by the Guernsey Financial Services Commission. Simmons Energy, a division of Piper Sandler, are the energy specialists of Piper Sandler.